Hi and welcome to the fourth episode of Indistinct Chatter. This podcast series is realized in connection to the eponymous group exhibition currently on view at Galerie Laia Vienna. My name is Pia Marie Remas and I am the curator of this exhibition. This episode consists of a reading from Masha Tupitzen's book Picture Cycle that has been published by MIT Press in 2019. Masha Tupitzin is a writer, critic and multimedia artist living in New York City. In 2015, she produced the 24-hour film Love Sounds, an audio essay and history of love in English-speaking cinema, which is now part of the exhibition in Vienna. For Masha, cinema remains the last medium for speaking and performing love culturally. While much emphasis has been placed on the visual iconography of love, with the exception of music, very little attention has been given to love as an oral phenomenon since the tradition and practice of Amour Courtoise. Love Sounds is an eight-part film essay and audio history of love that dematerializes cinema's visual legacy and reconstitutes it as an all-tonal history of critical listening. Her book, Picture Cycle, melts film criticism, philosophy and autobiography and investigates personal and cultural annals of memory, identity and spectatorship. The chapter I Give You My Word deals explicitly with Masha's film slash audio essay Love Sounds. It will be read here together with Famous Tombs, a chapter that focuses on the 1990s love relationship of Winona Ryder and Johnny Depp. Both chapters are read by Caitlin Mulligan. I give you my word, quote, I give you my word as I have nothing else to give you, end quote, a tell Ednan premonition. Speaking about the films of Harun Faraki at Artist Space in September 2015, Thomas Elsesser stated, quote, cinema has many histories, not all of them belong to film, end quote. Love Sounds, a 24-hour film I made in 2015, the same year as Elsesser's talk, also has many histories, not all of which belong to cinema. Using film dialogue to think about the history of love in movies, Love Sounds is about what one medium does with another. Love Sounds is one version of history, one version of the essay, one version of autobiography, one version of love. Cinema is made acousmatic in order to consider the loss of a public discourse of love post-cinema. Language is the problem I return to over and over in my work in order to understand a century's relationship to love and emotion, but also my own relationship to a new century that no longer talks about love that no longer has the words or holds the words dear. In the same way that the face was a technology of cinema, cinema was a technology of relationship. The Latin sermonim means common talk, learned talk, conversation, 
manner of speaking, discourse, literary style. In Love Sounds, I turn the cinematic voice into a sermon. The human voice, now muted by the internet's scattered and tone-deaf affects, was once the medium of love. I've spent my life tracking and mourning language. It's why I started writing as a child. Not to tell stories, but to produce inventories of the stories we tell. We make lives out of language, and we can never fully succeed at making our lives work because of language. Nothing anyone says is ever clear. An archive is a form of shelter. Love Sounds is a shelter that could only be made into a shelter by being made. I built what I needed to hear. What I asked the listener to listen to, I've already listened to, so the listening is doubled. I make the work to say something I didn't have the words to say. I was at a loss for words. Does this make it a dialogue? Does this make it an act of love? When I was little, I played secretary. I pretended it was my job to answer the phone. I used my voice to resolve the conflicts that came in through the imaginary phone line. I invented the conflicts and the solution to the conflicts. The fantasy phone calls I received were long and elaborate and required constant problem solving. I wanted to listen, to say things, to test everything out with words. I wanted to answer calls, to take messages, to write them down. One of, them, one of the etymologies for archive is public records, but also beginnings, origins, first place. The first place of love sound were these childhood stagings. Love sounds is also my childhood, my mother and father. Their love story is my origin story, my first place. One way to listen to love that works is to listen to love that doesn't. Because my mother and father's love works, because they never broke up, the question of an original split that never structured my life has structured my life. One first place of modernity is cinema, the last place for love. Love Sounds is an archive of our missteps of getting it wrong, but still trying to get it right. Growing up, I talked into a tape recorder. I didn't film things with a Super 8 or a video camera like other kids. I watched movies. Actually, I listened to them and remembered what people said. I never remembered narratives. I don't really understand plot. I always remember words. What I feel about faces is mostly tonal. Love is giving your word to someone. I made audio recordings by covering up the holes in cassettes with masking tape. Then I layered my own voice over them, braiding my voice with other voices. A video store clerk from whom I rented movies as a child taught me this trick. You can reuse these, he said holding one of his own tapes up to show me. You don't need to buy blank cassettes. 
I was seven. I recorded over The Temptations, Boy George, an early orange-colored Madonna cassette I bought at a Belgrade train station while traveling from Russia to Italy on a three-day train trip with my parents. I was 12 and looked out the window almost the entire time. I listened to Black Sabbath and Supertramp. In New York, I talked for hours into a tape recorder in our laundry room with the lights off, also in my bed at night. I performed skits. I performed monologues about the passing of time and the inevitability of death. I talked about what school was like, which I always described as a more positive experience than it actually was. I didn't say what was bad. I didn't talk about the way kids at school treated me. I sang refrains from my favorite pop songs, like Boy George's, Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? Do You Really Want to Make Me Cry? Over and over. I impersonated people. I imitated their voices. I interviewed myself. Each cassette was a calendar in the form of audio fragments recorded and amassed over the period of a year or more. Two sides, A and B. Later, boyfriends made me mixtapes and recorded audio letters to me that they sent by mail. I saved the cassettes from my family's answering machines. The first boy I ever loved once received a phone call at my house where a few friends were partying while my parents were upstate for the weekend. I remember all the lights were off. I remember it looked like no one was home. I remember everyone was spread out and standing still like statues. When the boy answered the phone on my mother's desk, which I found strange and rude, the answering machine kept recording. Brian, I think we're being recorded. He warned the caller nervously. His voice echoed and boomed throughout the entire house. I listened to this telephone scene for years, not having any photographs of him to look at. I was too shy to take any, or refer to for memory. His voice was my memory. So was his secrecy. So was that telephone call. Years before we became a couple, and years after we first met as children one summer, I got to know my first love by listening to him walk around his room in his fifth floor apartment in Soho, which was one floor above my best friend Nora's bedroom. I often went to her house just to study the sounds he made, to listen to his walk. I'd hear him come home, I'd hear him go to his room, I'd hear him practice his drums, I'd hear him fall into bed. I could sometimes hear his muffled voice. I did not know who he was yet, but I could feel it. I could sense it. The phone calls of friends and ex-boyfriends were also on those answering machine cassette ribbons, now warped. I liked the way you could pull a tape out of its player, find the ribbon stretched out and mangled, and wind it back in with a pencil fixing it. One summer, I kept an audio diary for a boyfriend while he was in London and I was in New York. I never ended up posting the audio diaries back to England. 
In them, I can now hear what everyone else heard in my voice then whenever I would return to New York for short visits, that my New York accent had become anglicized. As soon as I opened my mouth in NYC, people would immediately ask, where are you from? I'd say, here. Now, years later, people tell me I sound like a quintessential New Yorker again. What does that sound like? I ask. I have been recording my sessions with tarot readers and astrologers since the summer of 2000, building an archive from the things I want to know about my life but can't. The first recorded reading was in Prague, the second London. There were others in Italy, Greece, New York, Paris, Croatia. On a few occasions, I cried on tape in front of the divinators when they told me I couldn't have who or what I thought I wanted. Does that mean I didn't believe in their ability to predict my future? Does that mean knowing your future doesn't help you bear the present? Every single reading gave me hope in the form of a voice I could play back and listen to over and over. It was the repetition of listening to cumulative readings on my ongoing question about love not the predictions themselves, which almost never came true, that gave me insight into the future, into what it was like to continue living with hope in spite of something not coming true. Love Sounds is the last work in an immaterial trilogy. All three installments interface formally and thematically. Each project establishes a relationship to epistemological and phenomenological surfaces. The screen, the face, the voice, the page, gender. Epistemology itself is a surface I rework and explore. And ever since this world began, an audiovisual essay from Love Dog, the second installment in the trilogy, I use a singer, Judy Garland, and a song, The Man That Got Away to consider the gendered phenomenology of the female voice by visualizing the aural. In my writing about faces, I look at the tonal affects, the things of face voices and of voice faces, of a face. In Love Sounds, I use a visual medium, cinema, to listen to the emotional history of a voice. During the silent movie era, the face was treated as a voice. The screen face was treated as an audible geography. A book is no longer located on the page. Today's book is a curated space that interacts with and moves through many other spaces and forms. Love Sounds is one version of a book. Famous Tombs, Love in the 90s, quote, The skin is faster than the word, end quote, Brian Masumi, quote, 
What is there to indicate that we are no longer haunted by the one we've lost? End quote. Darian Leader. 1. Beginning. I was a preteen when Winona Ryder and Johnny Depp moved into a loft across the street from me in Tribeca. An older neighborhood friend, the sister of a classmate, told me they were living in her loft building on the top floor. I went home and looked for them that very same day. I saw him at my corner deli and on the street smoking, but never her. At night, I sometimes looked up at their windows and saw their lights on. The older friend said they had no furniture and seemed nice. Depp was not very impressive in person. Cute, but no big deal. His jeans had paint on them, and his t-shirts had holes. You might not look at him unless you knew you were supposed to, which is really the singular difference between people on screen and people off screen. Famous people are to be looked at. The story is, Ryder didn't want to live in pre-gentrification Tribeca because it was too isolated and scary to her, so they moved out only after a few months. This is, of course, ridiculous. Who could be afraid of Tribeca, already considerably gentrified by the early 90s, unless they were supremely bougie? Ryder was supposed to be a bohemian girl, a down-to-earth hippie who had grown up on a northern California commune, but it turned out that the lower west side of Manhattan in the early 90s, primarily still a white artist's enclave at this point, was just too wild for her. I loved Winona Ryder then. I, a weird girl, could not believe that a weird girl like her was on screen when she appeared in Beetlejuice and Heathers. Her creaky voice, black eyes, and 1940s-style dark hair, which she chose over her allegedly natural blonde. I even forgave Ryder her bad acting in period films like The Age of Innocence, Dracula, and The House of the Spirits because of how much her counter-image meant to me. Her look, her clothes, her early movies, her boyish, impish, scruffy taxi driver and Jim Jarmusch's Night on Earth before I even knew who Jenna Rollins was. 2. Middle Some actors are only made to play certain parts, revealing something about an age through their own age. Personal chronology becomes cultural chronology, and vice versa. Like John Cusack, another black-haired, pale-skinned, 80s-90s idol, as well as a youth actor whose great and perhaps singular gift was to enact a different kind of youth, a counter-youth and counter-masculinity. Winona Ryder was never timeless. She was of the time. Most especially that brief time in her life, her teenage years and early 20s. Perhaps this is why Jake Gyllenhaal's light brown hair was dyed jet black for the retroactive 80s Donnie Darko and Christian Slater's jet black for Heathers. Something about dark hair showing up in the late 80s and early 90s as a form of retribution for an aesthetically 
fascistic, and representationally narrow decade. These are people who were not kissed by the sun, who were not California dreaming, or, as German writer Heinrich Laube put it, quote, these pale youths are uncanny, concocting God knows what mischief, end quote. If, as the teenage pirate radio DJ Hard Harry puts it in Pump Up the Volume, 1990, the 80s were a totally exhausted decade where there's nothing to look forward to and no one to look up to. Winona Ryder rode up, rose up from the bleached blonde ashes of the 1980s. Playing the 90s was Ryder's part, for once the 90s ended, her specificity did not carry over into another time. She was characteristic, not character. Nor did she manage to recoup her cultural relevance, whose finish culminated dramatically with an arrest and public trial for shoplifting in 2001. And how could she, when we no longer cared about the same things and she didn't either, if culture speaks through bodies, faces, and colors, as well as events, Ryder is a temporal archive rather than an actor, a famous tomb, which all actors are to varying degrees, transporting us through time with their bodies and faces, which we visit and revisit. Ryder was employed not to play a range of characters well, the way actors are traditionally expected to, and the way we knew Ryder wasn't especially good at doing, but to reflect something about a particular time and mood. 3. The End In 1989, Winona Ryder and Johnny Depp, a couple, both made public declarations about each other in the press. Winona Ryder, quote, When I met Johnny, I was pure virgin. He changed that. He was my everything, my first real kiss, my first real boyfriend, my first fiance, the first guy I had sex with, so he'll always be in my heart, forever. Kind of funny, that word, end quote. Johnny Depp, quote, I'd die for her. I love her so much. I don't know what I would do without her. She's going through a lot right now. I wish I could just kiss away the pain, make it go away, stop it, kill it. If she, you know, I don't know what I would do. I'd kill myself. I love that girl. I love her. I love her almost more than I love myself. End quote. Two years later, Ryder and Depp broke up. Even though it didn't last, and they didn't die, or who knows, maybe they did, Ryder certainly died in some ways, and Depp did too. Here they are, two Hollywood stars at the top of their game, saying this about each other in print. Talking about dying when, according to Hollywood, which considers itself reason enough to live, these two have everything, not just each other to live for. Today, public relations would nuke a statement like that. Today, no one ever takes old words lost to lost words like die and forever seriously. Nor would anyone ever think to publicly state this about someone else, someone they love, let alone another actor in print. Today, 
public relations would tell, or worse, would no longer have to, Ryder and Deb not to talk like that in public, because talking like that is morose and alienating for fans, especially when the lovers in question are young, famous sex symbols we want to project ourselves onto. Can we even imagine two actors declaring this today? Two actors killing their burgeoning careers with melodramatic words like die and forever, when most celebrity couples today won't even discuss their love lives, let alone admit to dying over a breakup. For a while, Gwyneth Paltrow, formerly good friends with Ryder, talked about her first big love, Brad Pitt, this way. But after they broke up and she became a seasoned actor, both on and off the screen, Paltrow, like Depp and Ryder, stopped talking like that. Stopped talking about love, period. Which means that maybe a part of Paltrow stopped being able to feel that way. After all, how one talks is also how one lives. By the end of Depp's public declaration of love for Ryder, the promise of forever is mostly shattered. Depp admits that he loves Ryder almost more than he loves himself. This melancholic and narcissistic admission is a red flag, a glitch in the love story, despite his Winona Forever tattoo, which he later edited to Wino Forever. On the surface, his tattooed skin, Depp is literally able to drop his lost object of desire and replace it with something else. In this case, the insignia of purported addiction. This is hardly surprising given the preemptive mourning Depp does in his account of Ryder, anticipating and engraving loss into his relationship at the very pinnacle of their love. If, as Freud argues in Mourning and Melancholia, Melancholia is mourning in advance, the tattoo amendment itself is an affect of grief. Melancholia foreshadows and anticipates mourning. Inscription and encryption, addiction and dependency are close relatives and stand-ins for one another. Even before Depp actually lost Winona, he was expecting to lose her, maybe even trying to. In the case of his tattoo, forever endures as the only constant, forever lasts, by describing, tracing, and encrypting what has been lost. What doesn't hasn't lasted. It is what comes before and after forever that changes, and it is the addict who gets away with breaking his word. In Why Know Forever, inscription and encryption are updated and reframed more broadly as addiction forever. In Crack Wars, Avidal Ronald writes that drugs resist conceptual arrest precisely because they are everywhere and can be made to do or undo or promise anything. They participate in the analysis of the broken word. The adverb forever works in a similar way here. It is everywhere, haunts everything, lingers, and can be made to do or undo or promise anything. In the case of drugs, 
or more generally addiction, in order to break the promise of love, or forever, the addict steps in as the figure of unreliability. Wino replaces Winona, just as melancholia is mourning in advance. Drugs forecast and track an unraveling. The addict is the person you were never meant to depend on or trust, whose promise is broken in advance. While Depp had to remove traces of his lost love object, all addicts cover things up with their addiction in order to make room for new love objects that would undoubtedly disapprove of the tattoo remnant, the Winona Wino alteration chronicles the continuous loop of mourning and melancholia. While Depp chose the word Wino precisely because of its playful lexical proximity to Winona, the two words are also a record of their split, breakup. W-I-N-O-N-A By dropping the last two letters from Winona's name, Wino was conveniently piecemealed. Yet Depp, who could have erased the tattoo completely, replacing it with an altogether new engraving. Instead, Depp enacts only a partial, token, nominal erasure, so that something that did not last forever could nevertheless forever remain as a melancholic record of what has been lost. It is the dialectic between what is preserved and what has been unsuccessfully rubbed out that is crucial here. What the corrective wino masks, or pretends to, is the exteriority of mourning. Quote, the stomach became the tomb, end quote, Ronald writes in Crack Wars. Quote, at one point, Charles Baudelaire seems to ask, whom are you preserving in alcohol? This logic called for a resurrectionist memory, the supreme lucidity of intoxication, which arises when you have something in you that must be encrypted, end quote. Later in Loser Sons, Ronell elaborates on this trajectory of addiction and dependency further. Quote, As with the plight of addiction, elaborated by Thomas de Quincey, one can move only from one addiction to another, even if the second term is that of a cure. The oppression of a dependency, the demand of adherence to the addiction or to that which opposes, is structurally the same. End quote. In the case of Depp's tattoo revision, the transfer from Winona to Wino, from addiction to cure, and back to addiction, Winona is a hypercathection, which screams rather than silences. Winona was here. Winona wallows, swims, and what is left of Winona. A cheeky ode to alcoholism, Wino is Depp's recovery from Winona. It is Winona, not alcohol, that is the drug. One addiction, as Ronell points out, serves as a decoy for another. Rather than erasing her, Wino pushes Winona deeper inside. Dorita, quote, The cinder is not what is. It remains from what is not, end quote. Is love simply a manic episode for the melancholic? Something that always ends in disaster, the way it does for Justine in Lars von Trier's Melancholia. 
The word apocalypse means lifting of the veil or revelation. Justine, a manic depressive Cassandra, is Melancholia's final bride, but also its final melancholic. In the film, Justine's wedding day anticipates not only the demise of her short-lived marriage, which lasts all but one day, but the end of the world. Justine is the embodiment of this depressive finality, what Slavo Žižek refers to as the melancholy of extinction. Justine's melancholia does not only foresee the end of the world for all of us, but the end of the world is a, is a planet called, cathected as, melancholia. Freud writes that mania shares its content with melancholia. Addiction, a substitute for the love relation, as Ronell notes, is often one of the forms that mania takes. Mania brings out the dead, the buried, the repressed, by preserving it, by giving it a tomb. In an interview, von Trier relayed that a therapist once told him that melancholics tend to act more calm under actual pressure because they expect bad things to happen. In Melancholia, the eerily calm Justine comforts her terrified sister. Melancholia is just going to pass right by in front of us. But if that is in fact the case, if Melancholia is a planet that has been hiding behind the sun and is now passing by us, doesn't that mean that Melancholia has it all wrong? The end is in sight, but the sighting is not the end. Freud. In melancholia, accordingly countless are carried on over the object in which hate and love contend with each other. The one seeks to detach the libido from the object, the other the other to maintain this position of the libido against the assault. The location of these separate struggles cannot be assigned to any system, but the unconscious, the region of the memory traces of things as contrasted with word cathexes. Both the body and words, which are co-intricated in Depp and Ryder's oral love letters, require editing and rephrasing when things, Winona forever, don't go as planned and death does not part. In both the press quotes and Depp's tattoo, words, forever, first, virgin, literally get played out on the body. An inscription appears. An inscription is erased, rewritten, and turned into encryption. What disappears from view, Winona, goes into a vault under the skin. Equally, words go with the body, go where the body goes, go on with and without other bodies, taking the body out of the world and sinking deeper into one's own, Words stitch bodies and lives together, bind them and break binds. The answer to what Depp would do without Winona is provided by the tattoo amendment. Depp finds a way to live with melancholia and the consequ consequent symptoms of mania. Addiction, wino, not winine, Winona, mourning, forever, for while mourning is unsustainable, it tells us what we are missing in no uncertain terms. Melancholia is, 
It allows us to live with what we are missing because we don't know what we're missing. Before Johnny, Winona tells us that she was pure virgin, unmarked, unsigned, a self-proclaimed clean state. Nothing, she says, was in her yet. But there is a masculine-feminine polarity to Depp and Ryder's amorous declarations. Winona's testimony of love is more buoyant than Depp's. It has a levity that Depp's melancholy and weighted declaration doesn't. Yes, Ryder is younger and self-admittedly inexperienced. And yes, she is a woman, a girl then. So her forever is feminized and thus expected to take a more innocent and receptive form. She thinks forever is kind of a funny word because it is her first forever. The hierarchical construction to Depp and Ryder's relation is Pygmalion-esque. He fills and crips her with experience, first kiss, first sexual partner, first marriage engagement, first everything. Ovid, quote, the living likeness of my ivory girl, end quote. He is teacher and she is student. But how does a woman, even a modern woman like Ryder, gain experience without being ruined? How does an actor of one age survive the failure to endure in another? In the 1938 film Pygmalion, based on George Bernard Shaw's play of the same title, Eliza Doolittle's repeated insistence, I'm a good girl, I am, echoes Ryder's archetypally 19th century appeal to sexual and empirical innocence. The 90s can be considered Ryder's Age of Innocence, a movie in which she starred in 1993. For after her shoplifting arrest and public trial a decade later, Ryder, the virgin, became Ryder, the fallen woman. Like Emma Bovary, no experience turned into too much experience. Addendum Unlike Winona's seemingly death-free testimony of love, which focuses on Depp's Pygmalion role in bringing her to life, death figures prominently in Depp's hyperbolic pronouncement of love. Dying for, dying with, dying because of, dying for the one who dies, who wants to, as Depp suggests Ryder sometimes wanted to, which causes the lover to die with slash for the beloved. As the end of endings, endings as events and absolutes, could be said to divine, define the 1990s, death contains the life of these two 90s lovers and holds it in precarious balance. Life tips the scale of death and vice versa. Life depends on someone else, and when people are very young, they are still willing to admit this. Adulthood requires one to learn to live without, to get both used to and good at splitting up and moving on. Whereas childhood is marked by profound dependence and need. The dependency of childhood gets shaken off and uprooted by trauma and a lifetime of losses. So that what one discovers as one gets older is that being able to live without people is the requirement of, li of life. Living without the people you said you would not and could not live without. 
living without the people who said they would not and could not live without you. And like true melancholics, living with, while all along expecting to live without. Von Trier's melancholic inside-outside construction of the disaster film plays on this Freudian difference. It demonstrates that even if we no longer feel like dying, mourning, something final, melancholia, lives in us terminally. There is no work of mourning in melancholia, for the melancholic identification with and attachment to the lost object is total. Quote, Either we take traits from the one we have lost, end quote, Darian Leader writes in The New Black, Mourning, Melancholia, and Depression, quote, or, as in the melancholic case, we take everything, end quote. In melancholia, everything is earth itself. It is fitting, then, that Justine's severe depression takes everything with it, takes the whole world. For most of us, life goes on in spite of death, in spite of lost objects and lost worlds and the things, the relationships that die, in spite of our pledges to die for slash with the death of our others, and in spite of wanting to prove our inability to live. Worst of all, over time, we learn to live without even wanting to prove that we would stop living without someone Belief in this world and belief in someone break up like lovers. And as time goes on, we live without admitting the possibility that dying is even on the table. In the end, this isn't a 19th century novel. It is late 20th century Hollywood, and Depp is, or was, a modern bad boy and an expensive commodity who, at least professionally, outlived Ryder. He has the tattoo to prove it. And that means some people can't afford to die. They can only pretend to, can only adjust their idea of what and who is worth living for. Thank you, Masha, for taking part in the exhibition as well as for allowing us to read from your great book. Many thanks as well to you, Caitlin, for reading both chapters so beautifully. Above that, thanks to Emmanuel Leyer and the entire team at the gallery for making this podcast possible. Indistinct Chatter was extended and is now on view until the 8th of May. You can find installation views and further information on emmanuelleyer.com. Stay tuned for our next episode.